Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello. This is Babbage, The Economist's weekly science and technology program. I'm Jason Palmer, editor of Espresso, our daily briefing app. Coming up, could fish food be blamed for the rise of antibiotic resistance? You create a problem whereby those bugs can eventually use a process called conjugation, which is basically bacterial sex, where they transfer their resistant genes to other bugs that can get elsewhere outside of fish farms and potentially make us uh, very, very ill. And is range anxiety scaring consumers off electric cars? So the first thing to say about range anxiety is the ranges of electric cars are improving enormously, and that will be the first thing to sort of lessen that anxiety. But first, it's time to face the facts. Facial recognition software is becoming ubiquitous. Facebook can already spot your face in a crowd. Apple is introducing the technology into iPhones. The Welsh police even made an arrest earlier this year using this kind of software. But it's not just recognition. Algorithms can now determine your age, even your mood. Hal Hodson, our technology correspondent, thinks that it's creating changes that must be reckoned with. Hiya, Hal. Hi, Jason. And also joining us is Ludwig Ziegler, our technology editor. Hi there. Hi, Jason. I guess the first question I have is, why why this tremendous boom? So we had face recognition before. I mean, they're services, but they're not really good and, and, and not many people use them. And I think that's changing now. But has there been a sort of a, a technological difference? To steal something that you said, Ludwig, yeah. that it's there's an analogy to voice interfaces, which is that these technologies have been around for a long time, 20, 30 years. Computer scientists have been working on face recognition. And we are now at the point where we can do it with sort of 98.5 to 99% accuracy. And it's those last few percent that made the difference for things like Alexa that are now becoming very, very popular. And the thinking is that it's that last few percent that we're going to see over the next few years that will make the difference for face recognition. So you mentioned mentioning numbers that kind of are approaching but are not quite at 100%. I mean, what are the sort of the shortcomings? One of the most important shortcomings is that a lot of the databases that facial recognition algorithms are trained on are disproportionately white. And that means that the algorithms do not work as well when it comes to recognizing the faces of people of color or just non-white people. This means that if security forces start to deploy these things, they will inherently have more false positives for the faces of non-white people. That's a fairly serious problem if you're going to be pulling aside a disproportionately large number of a minority population. Other problems with the technology are just that there hasn't really been a public conversation about whether we want it to happen. Um, And because it is your face and you wear it proudly in public in most countries in the world, this can happen very quickly, and I think that's a, that's a lot of what we're thinking about at the moment. In that sense, it's the it's the golden goose for the tech companies, right? Because it's a, a means to connect your online behavior with your offline behavior in the world. If you can link your face to what you're doing out in the world, it's sort of closing the the advertising loop that's financing so much of this technology, right? Definitely. I mean, so so the the big online companies, Facebook, Google, they know a lot about you, what you do online, but they don't really know what what or have white spaces in terms of data when it comes to the offline world and and being able to identify you and and connect what you do offline with 
what you do online is, is going to help them enormously to target ads. Hal, you mentioned we, we kind of haven't had a, a public conversation about this. It strikes me that, in a sense, the, the genie is already out of the bottle. This is not something that's in the lab. This is about to be in an iPhone. This is about to be in an iPhone, but some of the more... Well, first of all, let's deal with... There's two kinds of face recognition, really. There's recognition that matches a face to an identity, a known identity. That is very much out of the bottle being used by security services all over the planet, soon to be used by Apple and lots of big tech companies. A slightly newer form of that is called face characterization which is similar, but instead of connecting a face to an identity in a database, it connects a face to an inherent trait or your mood. So it can match with things like your ethnicity, your age, your gender. And while that's maybe not super controversial when you think about it on a one-person basis, you know, I can look at people and take a guess about those things. But when you can do it for an entire city automatically through a CCTV network, for instance, it starts to become a completely different proposition. And the worry is that it gives those in control of the technology a little bit too much power and that we don't quite understand how that power will work. With all of this power that, that is sort of where we're on the threshold of here, I mean, how to uh, how to control it? What what suggestions do you do you have for for regulating it, for keeping this from becoming sort of a uh, a runaway technology that that the public more widely doesn't have a vote in? I think it depends on on, on where you are in the world. I mean, in, in Europe, I think they're pretty good or will be pretty good privacy laws in place. So if whoever uses it has to have the consent of the individual. You own your face, basically. The, the issue is more in countries where you don't have that limit, which are more authoritarian. That's where it really empowers the government even more. You can see that in China. I mean, they're deploying, I mean, there are already kind of several hundred million surveillance cameras in China, and more and more of these will have face recognition. They, uh, they already stop you from getting too much toilet paper. Yes. I mean, there's apparently in Beijing, there's one uh, public toilet where if you take too much toilet paper, they can see that and recognize your face, and, and, and you probably get some deduction from your social credit score or, or whatever. That's really, that's the problem. But again, uh, this technology has great uses, and it, it's, it's all about finding the right balance. It's important to remember that we're just talking about what's possible with the current technology, and all of the technical components that allow face recognition to happen are improving extremely rapidly. Cameras are improving their resolution, algorithms that allow you to decipher faces are improving as well, and the computers that run the algorithms in the clouds of Amazon and Google and Facebook are also improving. So. The mixture of things that allows face recognition and characterization to happen is getting better very fast. And so what we can do now is probably going to be completely put in the shadow by what we can do in five years. Ludwig Hell, thanks very much. Thanks very much, Jason. Thank you. What do you think? Do the benefits of this technology outweigh the possible nefarious negatives? And how should it be regulated? Let us know. We're on Twitter, at Economist Radio. And you can also send us an email, radio at economist.com. Next up, a fishy mystery solved. The sludgy sediments found in fish farms are usually teeming with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, even in farms that have never used antibiotics. Why this is the case has always remained something of a mystery. But now researchers at Dalian University of Technology in China have found the missing piece of the puzzle. Joining me is the Economist Science correspondent Matt Kaplan to, to explain a little bit. Hi there, Matt. Hey, yeah, how's it going? Not so bad. First of all, though, tell me how, how prevalent the resistance is. Is this, this is something you find in every fish farm? Yeah, uh, you go to any fish farm anywhere in the world and you're going to find bugs living in the sediment below the farm that have acquired a whole bunch of resistance, often to species of antibiotics that um, 
are really, really very important to us. And so the question is, how on earth are those uh, antibiotic-resistant genes getting into the populations? Why, why should we be troubled by this? This is just in fish, right? Uh, no, it isn't. So the bacteria that are living in those sediments have the potential to get elsewhere. And worse, as you create populations of bacteria that are resistant to our best antibiotics, you create a problem whereby those bugs can eventually use a process called conjugation, which is basically bacterial sex, where they transfer their resistant genes to other bugs that can get elsewhere outside of fish farms and potentially make us uh, very, very ill and that those illnesses would be resistant to our best drugs. Right. Okay. So some some researchers then from China have gotten to the, the bottom of the puzzle of how those got there if the, the fish themselves, if those farms haven't been exposed to those bacteria. What's, what's the secret? Yeah. The researchers realized when they were looking through the literature that it wasn't just farms where fish were being treated with antibiotics because the notion was, look, Fish farmers often use antibiotics because their animals are living in crowded conditions and to keep the crop of fish healthy, you got to apply antibiotics to them to keep them from getting ill. And that throwing antibiotics into the water was what was giving the bugs all of the resistance. That may well be true to some degree, but the thing that really created some realization here was they looked at farms that do not get antibiotics and the sediment below were still teeming with bacteria that were resistant. And that made them realize, well, wait a minute, if you've got farms where the bugs are getting resistant and the fish are not being treated with antibiotics, how is resistance getting there? And that's when they started looking at the food that was being fed to the fish on these farms. Because you feed some fish, some smaller fish. Yeah, that's exactly it. If you're going to be feeding fish uh, on a farm, ground up fish in what's called fish meal, then the question is, well, okay, what are those fish being exposed to? And is it possible that bacteria that have gained resistance on the farms that are being used to create fish for fish meal, are they somehow making it into these farms that are ultimately being used for fish for feeding people? And the researchers went about testing that. They tested fish meals from a bunch of different locations, and they made some really interesting discoveries. And crucially, they were pointing out that it doesn't matter whether you use lots of antibiotics on your fish farm that you're raising fish to create fish meal, what matters is how well you're treating the facility that's used to slaughter those fish and then package them into fish meal. If you use lots and lots of antibiotics on fish that are going to be transformed into fish meal, as long as you sterilize the equipment and bake that fish meal thoroughly so that the DNA is completely denatured, before it makes it to a fish farm where you're raising fish for human consumption, you really have very little problem because there's not a lot of DNA with gene resistance against our antibiotics that survives. This seems like a happy outcome. You just simply bake the food that you feed the fish before the fish become the food that we bake. Job done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, and that's actually the beauty of it is if these folks are right, and they're going to have to repeat the experiment to be sure of that, then the fix is actually remarkably easy. You don't have to actually think too much about what you're doing here. You just have to do a much better job of sterilizing your equipment and then denaturing the DNA that's in your food that's being fed to your fish. Always happy to, to hear a story where the, the solution to an evident problem is an easy one. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Jason. You take care. And you. Now, imagine you're driving, as I have, through the swamps of Florida. It's a glorious day. The sun shining, birds are tweeting, frogs croaking. There's nothing but nature for miles all around. 
And then the car sputters to a halt. Your electric car has run out of battery, and you're stuck in the middle of nowhere. This scenario is what a lot of consumers are worried about. Where can you charge, and how long it will take? This range anxiety may be one of the biggest hurdles to face the industry. But we're asking, is it justified? Simon Wright, The Economist's industry editor, joins me now. Hi there, Simon. Hello. I know, I know that you're going to think I've been a bit silly if I've got myself stuck in the swamp, but this range anxiety thing has been around for as long as electric cars have been around. I guess the first question to ask is, right now, how far can you get with an electric car? Well, you're right about range anxiety. And the reason early adopters of electric cars suffered from range anxiety is they had pitifully small ranges. Even by 2013, when the phrase entered the Oxford English Dictionary, the Nissan Leaf, which was the best-selling electric car at the time and still is, had a range of about 120 kilometres. The new version of the Leaf, which was announced today, will have a range of around 400 kilometres. So the first thing to say about range anxiety is the ranges of electric cars are improving enormously, and that will be the first thing to sort of lessen that anxiety. Well, that's one thing. That's the the space question. The other is the time question, because once upon a time, these things took an age to charge. That must be coming along too. Absolutely right. I mean, the, the second reason after the high cost of electric cars that people give for not buying an electric vehicle is the uh, is, is range anxiety and the difficulty of recharging that vehicle. There has to be a different mentality for electric cars. There has to be the sort of top-up mentality, whereby you don't run your tank down to zero and go to a, go to a handy place to a fuel station. You top up your car where you can. The speed of charging will depend on where you're topping up. At home, you can have a slow charger, which can take a few hours to top up your car. On the sort of curbside, you might want something more more sort of medium speed, which will take a, a couple of hours to give your car a decent charge. On the motorway, a very fast charger, which you might pay a premium price for, could top up your car eventually in just a few minutes, not unlike what it would take to fill with fuel. Yeah, but all of this presumes, you know, you're kind of invoking a notional network of there's plenty of these things around and fast ones and slow ones and cheap ones and expensive ones. This is not what we see. I mean, even in London, these we things don't are pretty see. sparse. We don't see, but we don't see many electric cars at the moment. I mean, you're right, there's a chicken and egg problem uh, going on here, but there are plenty of incentives to provide electric charging. If uh, cities are really keen to reduce the emissions from cars and they want to ban diesel cars, then they have an incentive to provide public charging points. There are private companies out there who want to charge money for charging. They have an incentive to provide the right sort of speed charges in the right locations. You'll pay a premium price for fast charging on a motorway. You'll pay maybe less for curbside parking. One of the big opportunities is charging at the workplace. ChargePoint, which is one of the world's leading provider of these those sort of services, thinks this is the way to go. A company can uh, install uh, charging points for a few thousand dollars, then for the cost of a sort of a cup of coffee per day, their uh, employees can charge their cars. And I think that's another, another way we'll see charging emerging. I mean, the future may look like every single car parking space will have a charge point at one point. Thanks very much for joining us, Simon. No, thank you. Well, that's it for Babbage this week. Don't forget you can read Simon's analysis in more detail by picking up the newspaper in store. Or you can have it land on your doorstep every week, conveniently. Just head to subscriptions.economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... 
partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.